the 45th President of the United States of America, Donald J. Trump. People are so frustrated in this country. Free speech under fire. They're bringing drugs. How desperate the left has become. How desperate Democrats have become. become. They're bringing crime. Dissolution of the country. They're rapists. Sever the ties that unite us as a nation. With the challenges and crises that we face right now, this is not the time to divide this country. Hi, I'm Tahi Wiggins. I'm Denzel Mitchell. And I'm Avery Shippers. And this is Main Street Speaks the podcast that discusses rural news, politics, and history from the perspective of three college students from the Northern Neck of Virginia. Today, we're continuing our series on education by discussing rural public schools and school boards. We'll hear from some school board members and touch on our own experience, as well as discussing some of the data about rural education. To preface, this conversation focuses on rural public schools. We don't want to imply that rural students are the only ones that face challenges. This is just the experience we are closest to and therefore are deciding to focus on today. And just so you know, I went to Northumberland County Public Schools and also attended the Chesapeake Bay Governor School program. And I did the exact same thing. I, unlike Denzel, who was born and raised in Northumberland, I started about halfway through first grade, so slightly less experience there. <laughs> Um, and I went to Chesapeake Academy, uh, lower and middle school, and then I went to Christ Church High School. All right. So now that we've gotten that little preface out of the way, there are quite a few different things that we'll be talking about in this episode. So I think we should just dive in um, and start with teachers. Now, these are, of course, the uh, educational agents to which students are the most proximate. Um, and, you know, they face some pretty unique challenges, not the least in, um, in the students that they have to teach. Um, in Virginia, uh, adjusted teacher salaries for specifically rural areas are $3,000 a year below the national rural average. So that's not even compared to the whole state. That's just rural schools. Um, and there's this interesting dynamic, I think, with teachers in rural schools that I know I've experienced, and that is that um, basically teachers, they usually stay pretty close to the communities in which they grew up. So, you know, if you have a, a student who went to Northumberland, they're much more likely to become a teacher at Northumberland or another school on the Northern Neck than going somewhere um, across the country. Basically, this means that a lot of the time, like rural schools will operate under this idea that they need to like grow their own teachers. Um, instead of kind of like attracting teachers from other areas. And as we know, rural teacher turnover is pretty high. Um, and so those are sort of like the, the initial data. And I'm curious if you guys can talk a little bit about your, your experiences with the challenges of teachers and some of the things that they have to deal with. Yeah, I, um, I have a few different experiences. Well, well, one, when I took Spanish at Northumberland, well, when I took it in middle school and then and then in high school, I believe I had around three different teachers. And I, I took a one-year break at some point. Um, and also I took all the Spanish classes I could. But I think over the course of my time at Northumberland, um, there were about four or five different Spanish teachers. And most of them were young and they were looking for um, looking to build their career, but they're also looking for somewhere where they could feel comfortable and can afford to live. And um, that's a problem we have. And my other experience um, speaks to that because my, my English teacher in, 
in 12th grade, my senior year, she was someone who worked uh, not only as a teacher, as, a, as my English teacher um, senior year, but she also had another job and she needed to do that to be able to afford to live in the area because unfortunately um, we don't have a lot of uh, affordable housing for, for up and coming professionals and for people who uh, may not have a, another salary from their spouse or something coming in that can, that can help sustain them. And um, I mean, you know, my last experience was, was when I, was, I, I had the opportunity to, to serve as a student representative on the school board I, I really uh, told the, the same stories I just, I just told to try to push the school board to, to increase the, the teacher's salary and the teacher's salaries. And they, and fortunately they, they did do so. Uh, but, but even then, and I believe they, they also did so this year and, and the other years um, since I've been in college. But unfortunately uh, the case, the, the, the fact is, is that it, it's still hard to live in this area if you're a young, uh, a young professional, or especially a, a young teacher, even though that you're you're literally raising the future of the community, um, which is especially important um, because of what you said, Tahi. You, you may be raising the future teachers in the community, right? So, um, teacher, the the ability of teachers to be able to afford to live in this area and also enjoy themselves in the area is very limited, um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that we have such a high teacher turnover. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I obviously like the the issue of teacher salaries is one that stretches beyond just Virginia and beyond just rural areas, and it's a, a nationwide issue. Um, you know, and my experience with Christchurch, uh, very different, I think, in that most of the teachers were, um, and I'm not sure if you guys had this experience as well, but they were prof young professionals from um, outside of Virginia and most times outside of most most times outside of the area but oftentimes outside of virginia as well um so that's like and the the biggest issue denzel similar to what you had just expressed is um kind of incentivizing them to stay in the area like for a lot of folks especially if they're young teachers like this might not be the most um sexy place to be at that kind of age uh and i think a lot of teachers and, and young professionals have a difficulty with that. I think also uh, in my school, at least they had a, a difficulty with um, making, you know, friendships outside of just these small, like outside of their professional lives, essentially. Um, and I know that can be a, a constant issue as well. Yeah, and I think part of it is there's, it, it almost seems like there's this like particularly volatile phase right after a teacher is hired. Um, and that's where a lot of the turnover happens. Whereas there are also people who have you know, been teaching for decades and are just very much established in the school. I know that um, many students have had experiences with teachers where they you know, will raise problems with the administration. And um, it really comes down to a matter of politics where it's sort of like, yeah, this person has been teaching for so long that, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to really like raise any concerns with them. And we're certainly not going to fire them. We're just going to kind of like wait for them to retire and leave with grace. You know, and I'm sure that approach has some benefits in, in maintaining a, a stable political climate in the, in the school, but I'm sure it adds, you know, it does add a little bit of strife.
Yeah, and I think this is a good place to move into talking about, um, you know, college prep and college readiness, uh, specifically as is measured by these, um, you know, standardized SAT, ACT exams. Um, so just a, a quick stat here, um, fewer than one in three rural Virginia juniors and seniors take the SAT or ACT each year, which I was actually quite surprised by because I know um, at Northumberland, at least there are some pretty like taking the SAT is pushed pretty hard. Um, but of course, you know, my perception as a, a very privileged person was, you know, I, I drove a significant distance. I actually took it at Christchurch, <laughs> Avery. You know, of course, there's a fee to pay um, to take it. And so there's all these kind of like small barriers that for some people are really, really large barriers um, and that translate into this one in three number. Of course, uh, this is also something that was mentioned in our past episode. Um, you know, there, there's just less access to these sort of like preparatory services. Um, you know, we, we heard from one of our, um, our guests on that episode that he had friends who uh, basically SAT and ACT prep were part of his school's curriculum. And, you know, the, the idea of something like that being kind of commonplace at a rural school to me seems a lot more foreign. What do you guys think of this sort of like culture around not only the standardized end of term exams, but um, also sort of like college readiness and what that whole like high school to college pipeline looks like in a rural area? I only took it once and I didn't study as much as I should have uh, because um, I think it turned out all right, but I, I kind of just disregarded. I was like, you're really going to judge how, how good I am uh, based on me sitting down for a few hours and taking this test, I, I was a, little, a bit rebellious. It's interesting because right now, at least this year, the usual standard tests aren't requirements for some to apply to some colleges and university universities. So it'll be interesting to see if that will be something that will be continued in, in the future because they end up being able to choose a good class without looking at those without looking at those tests. I think it'll be a good thing for the reasons that you stated, because there's a lot of barriers to doing well on the test if you are not of a certain economic class. But I also think that um, college readiness starts before your senior year and, and, and that we should be challenged to think critically and, and not take so many, for example, multiple choice tests, for example, because um, what, the, what the test is supposed to do is supposed to test how ready you are for college. But in college, you're doing many things that you, if you didn't take the right class in high school, um, you've never done before, such as reading large texts and analyzing them, uh, such as, you know, taking written exams instead of multiple choice exams, right? So I think that um, college preparedness needs to go a little bit farther than the standardized test. And also everyone doesn't want to go to college and everyone doesn't need to go to college. So I think that uh, there should be a continued and increased emphasis on uh, helping people into the workforce right out of school. Uh, the military or go to some sort of trade school or um, some type of certification program. So yeah, it's speaking about college preparedness and some of the skills that these classes instill in students. Um, we should note that in rural areas, 73% of schools offer at least one AP course, and this is compared to um, 95% and 92% in suburban and urban districts, respectively. Um, and only 62% of rural schools offer at least one AP STEM course compared with 93% of suburban schools. One of my own personal anecdotes is, um, you know, hearing about 
about my peers in college who, you know, are like, oh yeah, I took AP, you know, environmental science and US history. And, um, you know, oh yeah, I, I only got up to Calc 3 in high school. And I'm sitting there like Calc 1 was like an advanced course. With Christchurch, we were offered honors courses. Um, again, they were not standardized. They were just a more challenging course. So I felt very challenged by my high school experience, but that didn't pay off when I got to college. The entire AP credit system is extremely beneficial when you're entering college. I will say I have encountered dozens upon dozens of people at UVA who were already like, I, I, I can were, I know I knew some people that were already like 60 credits in. Um, which is unfathomable to me because that essentially means that they're like, when they enter UVA as a freshman, credits wise, they are technically at least a sophomore. And that is an extreme upper hand to have because what that signifies is that means, okay, well, you, you don't have to take as many um, credits going in at UVA. You might not have to take as many requirements because your math requirement might be fulfilled by the classes you took in high school. Um, so for those of us who, and I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna speak about uh, myself being underprivileged because going to a private school, I was privileged in a lot of ways, but one of the downfalls of my high school experience and also the downfall of uh, Tahi and Denzel's experience perhaps in this rural area, not having these courses offered to us uh, was that we entered us essentially on, a, on an unequal footing um, and that required us to kind of catch up in a lot of ways being back at school. So while we might not have had, while we, we might have had an equally as challenging high school experience to our peers, um, because the standardization of our classes in high school was not uh, the same as our peers, we didn't get the credit for it, um, literally and figuratively the credit for it um, as stepping into college. I will actually add though, and this is a, a good place to talk about governor's school, I think is this really significant, um, I don't wanna say disparity, but it is a disparity that, that governor's schools kind of cause. Um, Cause I actually, you know, Avery, you were speaking about kids who are coming in with, you know, a multitude of credits. And I was one of those students um, partially because of governor's school and partially because of um, dual enrollment credit and you know Denzel I'm sure you as well um, came in with a, a lot of credits um, just because of of attending the governor's school and taking advantage of that program. Uh, this is where governor's school is different as well because I think that I think it was um, I think it was equal to taking AP courses because the way we approached the subjects were you know very hands-on very analytical uh, not a lot of multiple choice exams uh, especially for marine and environmental science. Uh, Jim Beam was was infamous for making written exams. <laughs> but if you took dual enrollment at Northumberland High School and only at Northumberland High School, depending on what class you took, um, it may have been dual enrollment in name, but in practice, it was not much different from a normal class, normal high school class. And um, there were some classes that were dual enrollment that I took that uh, weren't as rigorous as the governor's school courses and, and surely weren't as rigorous as AP courses. Yeah. Yes. Okay. This was something that I was hoping we would touch on. Um, one of the other uh, points that came up in our research was that academic performance in rural schools has actually improved over recent years. Um, rural students have 
started to outscore their urban peers. And there's a lot of praise that comes to dual enrollment classes. Um, but I, I think Denzel, you made an excellent point about, you know, these quote unquote dual enrollment classes um, that, you know, were taught at the high school and really were not up to any sort of uh, rigorous standard. And unfortunately, the ones taught at, um, you know, just not non-governor school, just community college classes uh, felt kind of the same. You know, it was a lot of just read out of this textbook and answer these multiple choice questions about it. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think that there's a really, a, a really large space to improve in this space and kind of like treat dual enrollment as preparation for classes at a four-year university and not as just an easy way to kind of score credits that you can, you can take to college with you. One thing I really wanted to ask you both um, is in, <laughs> in college, do you think that you've ever had insecurities about your knowledge or your academic ability um, because you're now in this like much bigger pond? You know, I ask this because the answer for me is certainly yes. You know, I think, well, I was, you know, I was gifted or smart or whatever in the context of this really small school. And, you know, I did well in those classes, but at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm here in college and kind of like not complaining, but sort of lamenting about how those classes had low standards um, in many cases, not in all, but in many cases. Um, and then, you know, that results in me feeling like, oh, okay, was I actually smart or was I just like, you know, like not doing too badly in the very like small bounds of this town. And like when I get into the quote unquote real world or the college world, I'm actually like remarkably mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys felt that at all? Yeah. Uh, yeah, man, I'll say so much of my first year was just clouded in those insecurities. I, I definitely felt like myself comparing, um, you know, comparing my peers to, to my, myself and, um, you know, my academic abilities and hearing about everybody else's high school experiences. Like, damn, like, that sounds, that sounds nice. <laughs> I was like, that sounds nice to be able to come with that amount of credits. Um, but it was also something that, you know, going to Christ Church, I'd found myself develop a lot more skills and some experiences that were just you couldn't you know you couldn't trade those experiences for any amount of credits any day you know they're so much more valuable um and in that way I felt really privileged and it was something that you know as I as I kind of built up comfort my comfort level with UVA and with my classes and you know kind of just looking around and being like you know what it's all so damn subjective um like <laughs> who does this well in that test and who doesn't do that well in this test and what classes are you taking you know it, it varies so much and I think as I worked my way into um you know the spring semester of my first year I was like okay you know this is the this is the experience that I was given in regards to my high school um and it was very beneficial in a lot of ways uh, it might not have given me the best, you know, SAT scores. And I always joke that I got an 1170. And I'm happy to say that on public radio, even though 1170 isn't outstanding. Um, I think I had 1170 like super scored. Um, 
And, you know, it's, it's funny being at UVA because sometimes people will look at you like, what in the world? How the hell, how'd you get in? Again, I don't want to come off as being like, oh, I'm, I've been an underprivileged in regards to my academics. But no, I think that um, you just develop different educational academic experiences um, throughout your high school. Yeah, that reminds me of, um, you know, something you mentioned in that last episode about uh, kind of the way that we view education is, is through such a micro lens and there's some importance in thinking about it as a collection of your lived experiences as well as, you know, your ability to pick the right answer on a piece of paper. Denzel, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely felt the uh, uh, insecurities because, I mean, you know what, I, I didn't feel them as bad, to be quite honest with you, but um, because I think what helped me was that in and I would like to know your experience tell you because in school I wasn't seen as like uh, a a a student who would who is a a quote unquote smart student or good student until like my junior or senior year like for so long um, I was never bad at school but I was never like uh, seen as that oh that that good student uh, Denzel you know he's he's uh, he's doing very well this and that well, most of what I did to get to that point was, was really just uh, realize that uh, I can do well in school, um, despite, you know, who recognizes it. But when I got to governor's school, and I went to governor's school, I was just surrounded by, uh, you know, at least in my class, like 30 of the smallest, smart, smartest students in the area. And I got around them. And I'm not saying these, these kids weren't intelligent. It was just that being concentrated in a room with them, in a classroom with them on a day-to-day basis, definitely built my confidence because I knew I could I could keep up, and uh, I was late to the game in terms of in terms of uh, you know realizing uh, you know the potential of my academic abilities or whatever it may be, and I think that's something that helped me going into college. I didn't, I mean, I knew I knew I wasn't going to get a 4.0 GPA and be uh, a top student. But I had interest, and um, and those were interests that I feel like I had the time to develop because people didn't see me as purely an academic person. So, um, and I think those interests have, have kept me stable. I'm not going to lie, though. Yeah, I, I do get insecure. I think every student does in a competitive university at a competitive university like UVA. Uh, but I just lean back on, hey, I have this and that that I can uh, that I can do as well. So. I shouldn't be too concerned. And and that's how I try to cope with it. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I really, really love the way you put it, like your experiences. And I think it goes back to what Avery was saying about like educational excellence being more than just academics. Like it's about your lived experience. And I think you have like one of the richest combinations of lived and academic experiences. Um, And obviously it's like shining at UVA. As it relates to education in rural areas, um, for me, it was a lot of kind of like feeling like I was like ramming my head up against a lack of uh, like opportunity. And also in high school, kind of feeling very isolated because, yeah, I was really ambitious and I wanted to do big things for the world and in the world. And I felt kind of trapped um, in the area while also wanting to serve it and do right by it. I think that this is also a great place to discuss student mental health and, and the experience that students have had um, in our area and that rural students have with mental health. 
uh, difficulties. I think just looking at rural areas as a whole, um, you know, access to medical services is already lacking um, in Virginia and in our area as well. Um, but that can become even more so and more difficult to access uh, in regards to mental health and, and more uh, specific issues and specific services. So I wonder if you guys, uh, if either of you have experiences um, with, with mental health resources and the accessibility of those um, being in public school systems. When, when I was younger, I, um, I was suspended for, from school for, for fighting essentially. Uh, and and uh, I don't know what led up to the fight, but to this day, I, I remember racist comments being made. And I, I think one of the best things that the school did for me was they set me up with the school counselor for a little bit. Um, and it was a temporary thing, but uh, it was something very new to me. I didn't that didn't continue throughout school. And now I, I didn't continue to have problems either, but I was never aware of someone that you could just go talk to if you were running into a problem. Um, and, and it's also, quite honestly, it's nothing, it's not something that I really thought about until I got to UVA and, and it turned out to be something that was talked about by a lot of students and, and mental health professionals that there, there are a lack of these resources in public schools, including in college. That's one thing that I, and I, of course, I don't know what, what uh, awareness of mental health looks like in high schools across the country. But, um, you know, my personal experience was that I, having been exposed to it much more at UVA, I really, really wish that there was the kind of, just like putting it out in the open, you know, I think that it, it's still very much a taboo topic in high school. Um, whereas in college, you know, people are much more open about their struggles with mental health and the ability to seek services. And so I think access to mental health services and just opening a conversation about that is, uh, it's, it's something that I really, really am excited to see the future of in our area. But when we consider implementing these services in the public schools, like it definitely has a lot to do with funding and it has a lot to do um, with decision making um, as well. So maybe this would be a good segue into um, the funding of, of Virginia public schools and, and what these funds are allocated to, what services um, are prioritized over others. And if you're interested in that, tune in for the second half of our conversation about rural schools, which will be published next time. We'll speak about school funding, but also closing the racial equity gap and school boards policy and politics. And we'll hear from some school board members on the Northern Neck. So tune in next time. Okay, and now for our final thoughts um, on to the next, if not the greatest travesty um, that the Northern Neck has experienced during the COVID-19 pandemic is the termination of the production of Northern Neck ginger ale. <laughs> and while I am completely joking, because unfortunately we have other issues and larger issues to deal with, the Northern Neck ginger ale uh, production stopped, Coca-Cola stopped producing Northern Neck ginger ale 
amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. And they had originally set on permanently ending it. However, I've heard around the grapevine uh, of the area as rural news goes that it was stocked up in TriStar supermarket uh, just the other week. And there must have been, I saw photos of it. There were dozens of cases for the Northern Egg Ginger Ale and it sold out in a matter of minutes. This issue has created several petitions with thousands and thousands of signatures from uh, local fans and fans uh, from afar, uh, other places in the nation. And people love this thing. As we all know, it is a delicious, delicious drink. Even Ralph Northam tweeted about it. He said, not so fast. I grew up with Northern Egg Ginger Ale and I'm among the many fans who would hate to see it fizzle out. No pun intended. That's pretty funny. So, <laughs> so it is a Virginia staple. It is a Northern Neck staple, obviously. I always joke it's one of the few amazing things that the Northern Neck has to show for um, across the state and across the nation as well. So we will keep you updated on this very important news. Well, that's all that we have for you today. Uh, thank you for listening. Make sure to, to tune in next time for us to continue this episode. Uh, my name is Denzel Mitchell. I'm Tahi Wiggins. And I'm Avery Shivers, and we'll see you next time.